So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, November the 11th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 183. By the way, this is a playlist. So if you go to the YouTube channel, Frederick Dunn, you can look at playlists. And I divided them up. Apparently, this playlist was too full, according to one of the viewers. And so I thank you for that. So we have a new playlist starting off so you can find them all. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look at the video description below and you're going to see all the topics in order, along with some related uh, further information, links and studies and things like that. So I'm glad that you're here. It is 61 degrees Fahrenheit outside and it's raining uh, cats and dogs right now. Now I only got, we got an inch of rain here, but that by the way is 16 degrees Celsius and it's going to get cold. We have snow coming this weekend. Let's just call it like it is. It's going to be a bad weekend. And uh, I'm Frederick Dunn and this is the way to be. Let's get right into it. These questions were submitted during the past week and we have a lot going on. Also, while I'm Goofing off a little bit before I get started. Don't forget to check into the Hive Life Conference. It's going to be in January in Sevierville, Tennessee. And uh, I'll put a link to that down in the video description also so you can follow up on that. If you want to go to the largest beekeepers convention in North America, that's the one to be at. So many vendors are going to be there this year that were not there last year. And you get to talk to the inventors. You get to talk to people that know stuff about bees that make stuff for beekeepers. And there'll be something for everyone, including backyard beekeepers or commercial beekeepers. If you're a commercial beekeeper and you're going to bring a truck and haul a big load of something that was discounted down there, you offset the cost of uh, going to the Hive Life Conference. I'll be there. So I hope to see you at that. Please look it up. Hive Life Conference 2023. First question today comes from Michelle Armstrong from the city of Troy. I just watched a video from early May two years ago. You were using your hook to remove the entrance reducer, which was at the smallest opening. You replaced the wooden piece with copper screening. On your recent videos, you're using some hive gates and 2.5 by 3 8 inch openings all year round. Have you completely transitioned to that, or do you ever use copper rolled wire anymore? So that was an experiment that he did. I liked copper. And I already had a bunch of copper mesh around. Comes in a roll and it's very loose. And that's what you see in a video that I did about robbing and robbing screens and things like that. And I liked the copper mesh because number one, it was for rodent control. So if you've got mice and things like that getting into your outbuildings and putting up a copper screen or a copper mesh of some kind or stuffing it around electrical conduit, plumbing entrances and things like that, does a great job of keeping uh, rodents out because when they chew on it, rodents have open roots on their teeth and it gives them little shocks. Kind of like if you have fillings and you chew on aluminum foil on your fillings, you get little shocks. They don't like it. So it works really well for that, plus it uh, never rusts out and lasts forever. So I thought, hmm, plus it was antibacterial. That might be kind of cool on beehives. Long story short, I don't use it anymore. What I've replaced it with is stainless steel screen. This stuff is pretty rigid. And you can cut it with tin snips or a really good set of shears, by the way, that you don't mind dulling up. Because what I do with this is if I have a wide entrance... And I still want them to ventilate through it, but I want them to be able to guard the entrance. 
I take a piece of stainless steel wiring like this and I will put a link down in the video description to this because it is nice and rigid. And then I just take two screws. Remember you can't use magnets because it's stainless steel and it's 300 series stainless. If it were 400 series stainless steel, you could just have magnets on the front of your hive and just temporarily snap it right in place. And this would serve to keep robbers out. It also can be used uh, to reduce the entrance in general. But uh, airflow goes right through it. So I did airflow tests on it and the bees were venting through it just as if it were a complete opening. So it's kind of a halfway measure in agreement with those who want a broader opening on their landing boards to get more ventilation through to dehydrate honey quicker, for example, and at the same time provide the entrance reduction which can uh, reduce robbing, which right now, robbing's terrible, but this year I only had one hive that got completely robbed out. Disappointed in that, but I think uh, it had to do with the number of bees in it and everything else. But to answer this question, and it comes like this, you cut it down, but it comes in full sheets. And I think you get, you know, five or six sheets in a packet. And you can cut it down, use it for anything. This also does work for rodent protection as well. And uh, I think it's good. So have you completed the transition to that or use copper rolled wire anymore? So I have the copper stuff around for rodent restrictions, but uh, I don't use it on beehives anymore. Did have some concerns about also the copper maybe building up in uh, the wood at entrances and things like that, because as water washes over it, copper gets a patina. I do like copper cladding and stuff, but uh, and I had the idea that I would cover landing boards with copper so that the bees would walk across it. And I don't know about what that might also encourage them to put propolis on the inside surface of the hive. Haven't tested it, just throwing out ideas about where, how, and why you might use screen. So we'll move on to question number two. This one comes from, he calls himself Hive Tool from uh, Alexander, North Carolina. But I look at the bottom and I see that his name's Randy. So, just gave that away. Hi Fred, I've been seeing some information that say the pH of sugar syrups are too high as compared to what bees would get in natural nectars. They're using apple cider vinegar to lower, more acidic, the pH of the syrup, possibly helping gut health. One person, was missing the bees on frames with a vinegar solution, claiming the more acidic pH was helping with varroa mite control. I understand that the mechanism of operation of AOC is not fully understood. Could it possibly have something to do with pH? Obviously not related, but I have, asked, I have used baking soda solution to help fungus on tomatoes and things like that. Hopefully I haven't covered this before. Okay, so we do cover it, but here's what I want to talk to people about. Backyard beekeepers. Um, the conversation about, you know, syrup composition, what should be in it, what should we feed the bees, what's good for the bees, um, and the pH difference, right? So someone else even, I was listening to an interview, and uh, someone said, I know who it was, but I'll just say someone said that uh, bees use 40% more energy when they're given sugar syrup, so that's straight sucrose, as compared to invert sugar, right? So, and then I thought, wow, that is a huge 
effort. That's a big consumption of resources for the bees to make this conversion themselves. So I reached out to the same person and I asked for information, further information about that. And this is what you should always do. This is what, if nothing else today, I want you to question everything. And so when someone makes a statement about um, maybe spraying like this when they're misting the frames with vinegar solution, claiming that more pH, you know, uh, more acidity will help with varroa mite control. Always ask, how did you determine that? You know, where were, the, where were the tests done? How did you conduct your tests? And how did you determine that the varroa mites were reduced by misting the surfaces with whatever solution they put together? So these become very complicated and they'll find out that people might be looking into it or they had a one-off that seemed like it or it's anecdotal information which means there weren't scientific controls, there was no formal study. And uh, the other thing is repeatability. So if these things are really available and easy to get, I mean, vinegar is easy to get, uh, you could do testing like that on your own. I don't know of any formal studies, peer-reviewed or otherwise, that have demonstrated that spraying a higher acid content uh, sugar syrup onto your hives had a benefit regarding varroa destructor mite control. So I'm going to move away from that. The other thing is I want to reduce this mess because when you get into sugars, sucrose, invertase, which is the enzyme that creates invert sugar, and that ends up with glucose and fructose, and these become more digestible for the bees. But here's the thing. What we're describing is something that the bees do themselves. So the question is, should we be trying to accelerate that path to make it more palatable and prepare it more for bees ready consumption. It makes sense on the face of it. But here's what I say, what we're doing with sugar, straight processed white sugar. Um, a lot of people start thinking, how can I enhance it? How can I make it better? Let's not forget it's a, it's strictly a carbohydrate. It's an energy source. We're not looking at sugar as a nutrition source for the bees. So the idea that um, giving them sugar as an emergency resource, sugar syrup or dry sugar, it's always white processed sugar. Several studies have been done. It's gone way back. When I say several, lots of studies have been done. And the reason that a lot of studies get done regarding the sugar supplements that are given to bees is because it's directly related to their energy level, their ability to maintain heat when this time of year, when uh, temperatures are gonna drop and bees are gonna consume energy and burn it off as they generate heat to retain the cluster and whatever brood is left in the hive. So their number one beneficial source of carbohydrate inside the hive as that energy source, which also happens to have some enzyme material in it, which preserves it for a long time, that's honey, of course. So honey's number one for the bees, and don't forget that providing sucrose, providing sugar syrup uh, is an emergency, it's a supplement. Hopefully you're not a chronic feeder of sugar syrup for your bees. Like it should not always be on your hives. It shouldn't always be available to the bees. For one, we don't want it on when they're producing honey that we want to take off. So hopefully you're looking at sugar in a much more simplified way. I understand the desire to alter the sugar, to advance it along the line, but let the bees do that themselves. By the way, I got no confirmation that 
the honeybees were utilizing any measurable amount of energy to break it down and make this invert sugar themselves by producing the enzyme invertase and other enzymes that are in the bees uh, crop that go on. And that's why bees pass it. The more the bees, in my opinion, the more they process it and pass it mouth to mouth through trophallaxis, and the more they contribute their own enzymes, they're dehydrating it down. They're getting that below 19% moisture, whatever it is, and uh, turning it into honey. Now, we don't care about sugar being turned into honey. So we want it to be ready as a consumption source, just as a ready energy source for the bees going into winter, and it's an emergency feed. So I'm going to say, um, I'm not worried about it, but some of you will want to read deeper. So I'm going to include two studies that just explain the details of what actually is going on when the bees are processing sugars. And you can make your own determination regarding whether or not you want to add or acidify um, the sucrose in order to make it more palatable to the bees or accelerate that uh, inversion process to create invert sugars. So to me, I'm going to say not necessary. It is not a big enough part of the diet to be um, critical for the bees. So next we'll go on to number three, which is Roseanne from Everett, Ontario. I'm thinking of switching to the CO2 method of mite testing since it doesn't kill my bees. Have you ever tested it? And if so, what are your thoughts about its accuracy as compared to other methods? Okay, it's that question about accuracy that I want to really kind of talk about because it comes up all the time. Alcohol washes, more accurate, kills the bees, but you see more mites. And of course, I made the shift from alcohol to Ultra Dawn Ultra Free and Clear dish detergent. I used to have a bottle. Oh, I used this Dawn Ultra Free and Clear dish detergent instead of alcohol for a mite wash for the bees. It outperforms, but it's also super inexpensive. A tablespoon and a half per gallon for the mite washes. By the way, we're going to talk about some different mite wash containers in this segment here. So I'm just going to explain my thinking. First of all, this is Dawn Ultra Free and Clear I use in here. I wrote the formula on the top, and the one that worked the best, for example, is if there was much of a difference. There really wasn't. But when you look at these, these are made by... Varroa Easy Check by Pedo Pharma and uh, Pedo Pharma, Pedo Pharma, I don't know, but they leak by the way. So if you've ever used these, I think you already know. When you go to shake things up, you're, it's going to run out the edges here. So what I did is I took one of these and I converted it for CO2. So I marked it clearly for CO2 and I put a little hole in the top right there. So you can see that it's easy to do. And I think somewhere there is a kit that you can buy that's set up for CO2 for the bees. But the question is, is it more accurate? Is it a better way to check for mites and you don't kill the bees? Now, just for kicks, there are live insects in here. Those are not honeybees. Those are yellow jacket wasps. I'm sorry if you love yellow jacket wasps, but I'm gonna demonstrate the CO2 method with that. So there's an inexpensive way to get the equipment that you need. This is an emergency bike tire refiller. And it has a 16 gram 
CO2 extinguisher in it. CO2, CO2 extinguisher. <laughs> it has a 16 gram CO2 canister. If you were counting on this for uh, fire extinguishing, you'd have a problem really quick. So anyway, these 16 gram canisters, and the reason I'm going into these details is because this is an added expense to this method. So you have to have one of these, and I also recommend that you get the bicycle, not the tire inflator insert, but something that's designed to inflate footballs, basketballs, things like that. So you get the little needle, it's got the hole through the middle. And then you can buy these in bulk. So I'm gonna cover the ground here. You can get these in boxes of 10, and uh, they are, if you break it down, it's $1.69 per cylinder that you use. So $1.69 per 16 gram cylinder, and that's right here in the US right now on Amazon. I'll give you a link for that. So anyway, why do I have this stuff? So I'm gonna explain that I don't use it uh, as my bee mite wash method. And the reason is, if I hit the threshold with powdered sugar, so if I do a 300 bee uh, mite count, so by the way, you may be wondering, is there one that doesn't leak? Yeah, it's right here. This is made by Cerasel. This unit does not leak. Cerasel Varroa Test Bottle, Bees for Life. So this is a very nice, well-made one. It's got a nice gasket here. Word to the wise, for those who are making this unit, a gasket would probably solve the problem. And it's got a transparent top, but you've got a 300B scoop here, right? And I mark everything because I do a lot of teaching and uh, I want people to see and know exactly what we're doing. So you would scoop your bees, put them in here. And if you're using the powdered sugar method and I shake them up and I get six mites, five mites in there and uh, the bees are still alive because it's powdered sugar. And then I take this out. By the way, this has a little basket in here that the bees are in and there's a little push out on the side. See that right there? And that's so that you can hang it just like that. And then your mites are in the solution down here. But if we did powdered sugar, what I do there is once I've done my sugar shake and everything, I um, hose off the bees. So you can rinse them off and I rinse them into a coffee filter. So now I have wet bees that were sugar soaked and then I dump them out on the landing board or somewhere adjacent to the hive so the other bees can come and clean them up because they have powdered sugar on them. But if I've hit my threshold and I know that uh, I've got mites and that I'm going to treat, what does it matter if I got six or 10 or 12 mites in my count? It really doesn't because they hit the threshold. So for those of you who are not wanting to kill your bees, but you want to know if you even have mites and get an indicator of what level doing a proper sugar shake test, I've seen people do it wrong. Uh, when you put your bees into your mite counting container, and usually there's other mite containers that are better, mite containers, there's other bee mite roll containers that are better. There are quart mason jars with just a screen lid on it. Then you take a couple tablespoons of powdered sugar, and after your bees are in the jar, dump those two tablespoons down on top of them instead of them landing on a jar that already has it in it. And then it dusts over the top of them and they get all frizzed up and they get excited and their bodies heat up and they start grooming each other. And you set that in the shade somewhere and you give them a couple of minutes to groom out. And then you can shake them out dry or what I found gives me a higher count 
is to rinse them off with warm water through a uh, colander that has a large paper filter on it and the bees are wet they're not dead they're still going to go back but it gives me a better mite count than just the dry shaking them out onto a piece of paper so there are a lot of things that you can still experiment with that don't kill the bees so the co2 method if we have these rascals and they're walking up the side see that one advantage and the reason I have this is because I can use this on any bug. I could use this on hornets, beetles, anything that I want to knock out temporarily and it works really well. So there's a little controller on the back here and we're going to demonstrate it. I trill a hole in the top. I want my hole to be in the top because, and I also want the hole to be larger than the diameter of the needle going into it. So this is about an eighth of an inch in diameter and that's because when I introduce CO2 into the container, it's going to knock out these bugs, but it's also going to displace air and the air is going to blow out through the same hole because remember, there's no other openings here. So what it does is gives an immediate knockdown. So if there were honeybees in this case, again, these are yellow jacket wasps, but if there were honeybees, the knockout is instant. And uh, then you can look it over. So let's, let's prove that. So we've got yellow jackets walking on the walls in here. I stick this in here and I open it just enough and it just places through the top and then all I do is keep my finger over the top here for just a moment and if you look they're already on the bottom that is instant now you might be saying I don't believe you take the lid off and prove it so now look what's in here yellow jackets that are conked out now are they dead they look dead but all that's happened is we knocked them out with co2 so and they're a little damp because i collected them off a sugar water feeder outside but now you can count the mites so you're still going to agitate them right and i took the basket out because i wanted to see i wanted you to see the yellow jackets but this is the basket that they would be in if they were your bees and then you would have the lid on and you would just shake the mites off of them after a couple of minutes of being knocked out now are you worried that these are going to fly right out and escape look how quick that happened that was just a few seconds the reason that i like that other than the fact that it's an immediate knockdown is now we could actually pick up individual honeybees if you wanted to if you're teaching for example and we can examine these passed out bees. Where are we looking? We're looking at the underside of the bee because we're looking to see if there are varrodestructor mites tucked in on their abdomens on the bottom. So you can actually see the varroa mites in there. Is this better than a sugar shake? Well, you're spending money for the CO2 if you're using it. It's definitely clean. You're not dusting them with anything. So, now these bees are going to be out for a long time. They're not dead, but hopefully it's warm enough and you're going to set them someplace safe and keep the lid off and let them warm up and get fully active again and then shake them out right on the landing board uh, because they're not going to be flying anytime soon. For all purposes, they look absolutely dead. Do not forget and leave this jar open with a bunch of hornets or yellow jackets on your kitchen table and go off to get coffee and go to an email or something and then you come back you potentially 
could come back to a room that has some free flying and I don't know, up against the kitchen window or something. So you want to be aware that you have them. Some of them are already moving a little bit right now. So we just put the lid back on and that's how CO2 works. Displaces oxygen, knocks them out, and they'll come around usually half hour, 45 minutes. They should be 100% restored again. Don't leave them in direct sunlight or anywhere where they can overheat. And you can count the mites because just as quick as it knocks out those hornets, beetles, wasps, spiders, anything else, uh, the varroa mites are also knocked out. But what I find is you really have to shake them around to get the mites to fall off. So now you could sort through them. We're only talking 300 bees. So if you've got the time, you're a backyard beekeeper, dump them out on a piece of white paper or something that you can see really well and start sorting through them and actually look at them and see if the mites have fallen off. Here's the other cool part of it. Once you get the mites separated from the bees, you can put the mites in a little container. I like Petri dishes, little ones. And then the mites come back around and they're alive again too. And so they're walking. So if you're into photography, if you're into macro photography, macro video, things like that, you have an opportunity to place the mites where you want them, light them the way you want, and then as they come around and start moving around, you can get fantastic photos and video sequences of varroa destructor mites. So for me, CO2 has a lot of practical applications. I think for the backyard beekeeper, CO2 just for counting mites, I don't see a huge advantage over just the sugar shake method. So if you're doing the sugar shake, any of these containers will do. If you're doing a soap wash or if you're using an alcohol wash, I highly recommend uh, something like this from Cirocell because it does not leak. These leak. So that's enough of that. I hope I explained it. We talked about the cost. Um, I think getting the bicycle inflators is a little cheaper than buying the one that's designed for Varroa. So if somebody has a kit, by the way, that is just for Varroa counting with a container and everything, but any container will do. Uh, if you're counting that way, you can really use plastic peanut butter jars, anything. You don't have to buy a specific jar just for it, but you do need a scoop so that you can count 300 bees so you get a more accurate representation. And they come, of course, from your brood frames. So, and if the queen's in there, mm -mm, at least she's not dead. She'll stand out. She won't be wet. She'll just be knocked out. You put her back in. She wakes up, had a headache or something, and she's right back in service. So it's a great way before you start shaking them around like crazy. Um, after you've knocked them out with the CO2, that's when you could open this up before agitation, before shaking them around. Look them over, sort through them. Use a kebab stick or something to poke through and uh, look to see if the queen's in there. So another safety level to using CO2. And that's it. Question number four, Roseanne, wait a second. Roseanne snuck two questions in. Okay, I've been reading a lot about small cell foundation frames. Have you used them? Do they really produce smaller bees? And do you think they're effective in helping to control varroa mites? So here's the thing about that. Small cell recessed bees, uh, by recessing them to smaller bees and everything else. Uh, 
some people got together. I think there was even a group of people that got together and said, this is it. It works. Uh, the varroa mites are reduced. And the thinking is that uh, if the bees are reproducing, and we're talking about worker bees, if they're reproducing in cells that are smaller, small cell foundation, that there wouldn't be enough room in there for the varroa destructor mite to get in before that cell gets capped for the pupa phase and uh, would then not be able to reproduce because the larvae would take up too much room in their cells and uh, displace the varroa destructor mites. So this got studied, actually. People took a serious look at it. And I don't know why this, this just has wings. It just keeps getting recycled as a method to go with. But uh, every practical test that's been done to evaluate that scientifically with controls and everything else, and very tight parameters, University of Florida, Cornell, they all did these studies and found no significant difference in varroa destructor mite reproduction in small cell foundation. So, and do I try small cell foundation? I don't. Um, when it comes to the brood area, by the way, which is where the cell size is pretty important, every other frame in a brand new hive, if I'm setting it up, every other frame is foundationless. So they can pick their own cell size. They build it out. They festoon, they start to build out their comb. And that's why even in my observation hives, we have frames of nothing but natural comb. And that's because we can note the cell size differences, but going specifically with small cell foundation in an attempt to control varroa destructor mites and produce a smaller bee. And can the size of the bee be impacted by the size of the cell? Let me give you a good example of that. Uh, people that are coming out and looking at um, the drones, the male bees, you'll see these big, fat, huge, heavy-bodied drones. And then every now and again, if you pay close attention, sometimes you'll find drones on a landing board that seem really runty. They're really small. They're small in diameter. And if we look at the brood frames of beehives and we see that the the drone cells are usually around the periphery. They're built along the bottom, they're in burr comb, sometimes they're between, like if you've got several boxes in a Langstroth hive, the comb between the frames uh, will often be drone cell comb and drones will be developed in them. That's why when you're pulling apart your beehive boxes and you've pulled one box off and you had this connected material, this uh, beeswax comb between, you see a bunch of grubs in there and you're like, ah, I killed the queen or something. Nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, those are just uh, drone cells. So the reason I bring that up is the drones are big and fat when they're produced in the cells designed for drones. When are drones produced in cells not designed for drones? Often when we end up with laying workers. So if you become queenless, three weeks roughly, they've determined that it, that's how long it takes for worker honeybees, which are female, to activate their ovaries in the absence of a queen pheromone. So then when they activate their ovaries and they begin producing eggs 21 days after their queens departed or died or for whatever reason and they didn't replace her, these workers start to lay their own eggs and they start laying eggs all over the place. And they lay them in regular worker cells and they produce drones. And when you see these drone cells that are in worker cells, it's really distinctive because they're what's referred to as bullet cells. And that's because when you look at the brood, when there's a worker bee developing in it, there's a slight contour, slight convexity to the surface of that pupating worker bee. But when it's a drone in a worker cell, that little cap really protrudes. 
and it resembles a bullet. That's why they're called bullet cells. So what you end up with is this skinny drone coming out of there. So physically, the drone is much smaller when it's produced by workers that have turned into laying workers. So the cell can restrict uh, the size of the bee that's produced in it. But as a means of controlling varroa mites, it's been visited through the years by several experts. Studies have been done. It never held up. So that's that, but that's still going to be, some people are going to swear by it. They're still going to think that it works, and they're still going to say that that's the way to go. And um, I can't tell you anything else other than to always question it, always look at the science and find out how they validated that that was something that was working. So I've not ever been able to find support for that. Question number five comes from Sandra from Oakland, Maryland. Let's see, have you come across a hive that seems determined to run two queens? I have four hives, one of which had two queens side by side two times this year. Lucky for me, because both times I needed a queen. Last inspection again, there were two queens side by side. And uh, didn't need one this time, so I left them. Do you see any issues with this going through winter? And so the question is, Often, and this is something too, that when you speak in absolutes about bee biology, it can come up and, and bite you. Because it's one of the things that people often say, and this is because it's what they've been told, is that uh, each hive has one queen. And uh, everything comes from the queen. All the reproduction from that colony is going to come from that queen. And actually, there can often be more than one queen, and we see it a lot, especially when they're in transition. So when honeybees are in the process of replacing a queen, so maybe there's just been a swarm, uh, that's a time when you could easily find several young, virgin, unmated queens in the hive. So that's one circumstance where you might find them. Now, they do try to hunt each other out. There is competition between the queens. And so once again, most often one queen is going to sting and kill the other queens. So generally the activity, the fighting that goes on is not really from the workers, but it's from a queen turning on that queen. Now, you bring in a queen from another colony, not genetically related, and you try to introduce her to a queen right colony, because this is another thing that someone said that, well, workers will never kill a queen. Uh, only queens will kill queens. So what I want to explain is workers may not kill a queen if she's from their own stock and very closely related genetically. But if you drop a queen in from another colony, in a colony that has a resident queen and strong queen mandibular pheromone already there, they will certainly sting and kill and reject that queen. So again, there's a lot of variables going on. Now, often, too, what happens is a queen that emerges does not successfully hunt out and kill another queen. Or maybe the other queen is a little behind and hasn't come out of her queen cell yet. So then the other one that's out gets accepted, goes around, connects with everybody. And then the next queen emerges somehow, but doesn't have a strong pheromone. And so isn't much of a threat. Doesn't get the other queen's attention. And then she completes her mating flights and comes back. Often what's happening too is that only one of these queens is laying, so only one is productive. The other one has had her reproduction suppressed and also is not being favored by the workers. So this is where 
observation hives really come in and become really interesting. It's also where it becomes very important to mark your queens. So if you can get that paint stick and you can mark the thorax of your queens when you collect them, then you're going to know the next time that you're inspecting the hive based on your records, I've got a queen in this hive, she's marked, and then you see the marked queen. And this is something that other people often say when giving presentations and they're right, is often you only think you have one queen because as soon as you find her, you stop looking. So always keep your eyes open for every frame, especially brood frames, and try to see what's going on there. And sometimes you'll see a second queen. And here's your marked queen who just scooted around to the back side of the frame. And here's another queen that's unmarked. So marking queens becomes very important and log that you marked the queen. That lets you know if she's been superseded, if the next queen you see is not the same queen that you just saw 10 minutes ago. And generally speaking, as I mentioned before, the second queen is usually smaller. Her abdomen is smaller. And so she kind of shows that she's a reserve queen. And uh, the other queen just tolerates her. They're sister queens. So it's very interesting and can happen. Yeah. So, and there are people that have, let's not confuse it with two queen systems where you have intentional colonies with their own queens pushed together. And then the upper boxes, there are queen excluders that keep these two queens separate and their brood separate, but the upper boxes are combined. So you have a two queen system where they're all contributing to their workers are all contributing to a boost in honey production. So a two queen system is very different from coming across an extra queen. And as I mentioned before, when I'm collecting swarms, often I find multiple queens in a swarm. And this is interesting, I just thought of it. One of the reasons that uh, when you go to hive a swarm of bees, now most people are collecting a swarm of bees, they go over to their new box, their new hive, and they just dump all the bees in. No decision making on the part of the bees there. But what I like to do is dump a representation of the swarm I just collected into the box to get them going. And then I just lean the other box, whether it's from a Colorado bee vac, maybe it's a big butterfly net that I like to use. I just lay that thing on the landing board and then I let the rest of the bees go in. And what's happened before is half the bees go in and they occupy the box and their Nazanoff gland is fanning away at the entrance and what's outside still left in the box Half the bees in my Colorado BVAC, for example, are sitting in the box and they're not going in. It's incredibly frustrating. And I thought, why aren't they going in? Instinctively, we want to take that remaining cluster of bees still in the box because we collected them at the same time, same swarm. And we instinctively want to dump them all in and force them into that hive. Don't do it. And I'll tell you why. Because what I've learned is when I get a cluster of bees that won't voluntarily walk into the hive, even though there's physical contact with the hive, then I take that box to another hive. Maybe it's a smaller cluster, so I use a nucleus this time. And I take a handful of bees out of that box, and I put just a handful inside the hive, because they can walk right out. They can leave. They don't have to go in there. But once I do that, there's no longer a resident queen there, because now in the other one, they had a queen, there were multiple queens in the swarm. And as soon as I provided them with another cavity to occupy, now they woke up and they all zipped right in there. So there was another queen in that swarm. So sometimes swarms combine with multiple queens. And so when you give them the opportunity to walk into the hive on their own, when you put it up against there and you scoop a few influencers in there and then they scope it out and they decide it's good, 
and the rest of them march in, but like half of them or a third stays in your box, consider that you might have another queen already there and move those to another box and watch them go in. And then you'll feel like you're starting to figure out honeybee biology. So there are a lot of variables. So watch out when somebody says there's always only this or that because time and observation will teach us that there's a lot more going on. And the more we let the bees decide what to do, the better off we're going to be in our understanding of what's possible. So I think I answered that. And if you've got two queens, usually it's one is in lay and the other one's just like scooting around. Now that queen may also depart later for some reason when times are good. So you could have a queen depart. And even though they may not produce new replacement queen cells, because they might be then grooming the younger queen to be retained and the other one just goes. So a lot of things can happen. Question number six comes from J mom. Question is, is it possible for a hive to be honey or nectar bound going into winter? How could one tell if the hive is too heavy? It's too late in the season to be digging into the brood box or even to break the seal between the bottom brood and the second honey super. Or is it something not to be worried about as the bees will leave a few open cells for the queen? Thanks. This is Northern Illinois. So anyway, um, this time of year, so right now we're the second week of November. If they are honey bound, that doesn't bother me in the least this time of year. Because being honey bound is a concern in the spring and that's because it could encourage them to depart. So that can force a swarm. Uh, this time of year with the cold weather settling in, snow, storms coming, highly unlikely that they will when storing too much nectar, for example. So you'll have a bunch of open cells of nectar. And I see a variance, by the way, again, in observation hives. Some of them have very shiny, glistening, full of nectar cells, and others are pretty dry with a whole bunch of capped honey above them. So there are differences even colony by colony. But if they've taken up, so we'll explain what being honey bound is. That means they're backfilling every available cell in the hive, even the brood areas, which is where the queen has to find open cells to lay eggs. But what's coming up? We're at the lowest production time of year because the stimulation for them to be reproductive is missing. There isn't a lot of pollen coming in. There isn't a lot of natural forage coming in. And a lot of people are feeding right now, which is why we end up with a bunch of nectar, not so much pollen, and therefore not so much brood. And that's when you can end up being honey bound going into winter, which for me is not a concern. Because then when the bees cluster over what will be the area where they start their brood, they're going to be consuming the open cells first. So the same areas that are backfilled that aren't normally full of honey or even used for honey, they will have carbohydrate resources that the bees will be consuming and cells will rapidly open up. And where will they open up? In the middle of the cluster, right where the queen is going to start laying again. So she will start to reproduce going into winter still. So for me, not a big concern this time of year. Now in springtime, it does become an issue. That's way ahead. But let's think about that too, though. If they have too much nectar and we don't expand the boxes and give them room to store it, going into spring when they're doing a buildup, then it does become a concern. So I would not want to be giving them a bunch of liquid uh, auxiliary syrup and things like that too early in spring and causing too much of a buildup before they've established their brood really well.
So, in the spring is a problem. This time of year, I do not see it as a problem. And you're right. Please don't pull apart your hives and look at anything this time of year. Even if you think something's wrong and they're going to die. If it's cold, uh, you're not going to do anything about it. So, if you've got a colony that you think it robbed out and maybe the queen is gone and everything else, it will not benefit you to have that answer right now because you wouldn't be requeening. You're not going to be combining them with another colony. Your opportunity window to make changes and adapt your hives and your different colonies to one another has kind of closed. So your opportunities are gone. Please don't pull things apart. We had kind of our last warm day on Thursday. So the bees have sealed everything up and we do a lot of damage when we pull things apart. This is also why I like people to feed on top of inner covers rather than down in the hive during winter because we don't want to be breaking apart, especially that top propolis seal, which is the inner cover. And then you've got your first box, which should be a super this time of year. Uh, you break that seal and then there's a constant venting of air and the bees don't have the opportunity to seal it back up because it's not warm enough. So hopefully we let them do that. This is question number seven, which comes from Steve from Warner Robins, Georgia. To, to do, how do you use Apigard in our lands hives? So first of all, if you're wondering and you're backyard beekeepers and you're looking at hive designs, because some of you have been learning all year, winter time is when you put all your thoughts together and you start planning for equipment that you're going to use. This is a timely question from Steve. Because a lands hive is different So I'm going to pull it out right here. Now this, of course, is a model of a hive. This is what the Lands hive looks like. So I have two of these and they're well insulated. They're well designed hives, but they have drawbacks to them. And the question from Steve is, how do you use Apigard in your Lands hives? Because it's a thymol base. It's an essential oil based uh, treatment for Varroa destructor mites. So we pull this lid off. What's in it? reflect tax. So we want to make sure that all of our hives are insulated right now. And then we're going to go through here and there's another pillow of reflect tax underneath of that. And it's that air gap between the two that provides a higher R value. Here is, and also there's reflect tax on the divider board here for this space. So this is the warm area. This is the entrance that the bees are using. Here's the problem with Using Apigard, these hives are not designed for that kind of treatment at all, not in the least. The backs of the Lands frames are unique. They're different uh, if you're comparing them to Langstroth frames, which by the way, when Langstroth frames come together, there's a gap between them. They have shoulders that come together and there's an open gap. Bees move up over the top and down the next frame if they want to. With the Lands frames, the backs are composing the inner cover. So there is no inner cover. These are the inner cover, the frames are that way. So when you're using a Lands frame, Lands hive with this style of frames, you cannot use treatments like um, Apigard. And that's because there's no place for the vapor. A couple of things need to happen. The vapor has to travel freely through the hive 
bees need to be able to come up and have access to the apivar. And so the way these hives are built, you would need to establish an opening here somewhere. You would need to either spread apart these frames, set your apiguard on top of it, have a space above it to accommodate the apiguard, and then still be able to close it off and then treat the hive. Now, it's good for 60 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So we're at the end of the year, it's getting colder. The chances of it dropping below 60 will make the apiguard relatively ineffective because the higher temperatures are needed to spread it around the hive and the bees need to walk through it and access it and help spread it through specifically brood areas where we want to affect uh, potentially varroa infested nurse bees. So when it comes to this design of hive, that is really not a good uh, choice for treatment in my opinion. So what treatment would you use on a lay-ins hive? I would highly recommend that you look into um, oxalic acid vaporization for the lay-ins hive. And that's because you don't have to disrupt everything. We will not be, again, remember, I don't like splitting apart the propolis seals. And the way the bees work with the lay-ins frames are put together, they provide that propolis seal frame to frame. So if we're pulling it apart to provide a treatment to reduce mites, at a time of year when they may not be able to bring in new propolis and reseal everything, uh, we create more challenges for them. So maybe consider if this is the time of year for you when the brood is also reducing and you have a much better efficacy with your oxalic acid vaporization, that is what I use for all of my horizontal hives. Because now all I have to do, the way these are built, there is... Uh, space in between these panels here that compose the sidewalls all the way around and it has uh, sheep's wool in it, which is a great insulator, but you can't drill a hole in it and run a ProVap tube in there, for example, uh, because you, your drill bit just twists up on a bunch of uh, wool and uh, you don't get a hole all the way through. However, across the front where these entrances are, there's a solid band of wood it goes all the way across and then it's sandwiched onto that band of wood. That is where you can drill a quarter inch diameter hole and use a quarter 20 threaded thumb screw, for example, just as a placeholder for it. But then you could introduce with a ProVap or a Lorabees um, OxaVap, or I don't know what the title is for it, but any of the oxalic acid vaporization systems that have a tube, a delivery tube that's a quarter inch in diameter or smaller, then you could put that right in here and deliver a single dose and get very good efficacy. Assuming the temperatures outside are above 60 degrees, so we have a loose cluster, so then when you sublimate the oxalic acid, it travels freely through all surfaces, gets on all the bees, the brood area, and everything else, and you'll have very good mite control. So I, that's what I would recommend because this design is not intended to have treatments like that. And if you got it from... HorizontalHive.com, which is Dr. Leo Sharashkin, he wants no treatments on any of the bees if you're following his philosophies in natural beekeeping. So I recommend, though, this is, I like Dr. Leo, I like his methods and everything else, but we, we have differences in how we manage. So if I have varrotostructor mites in my hives, uh, then I'm going to treat them. So that's what I would recommend for that style of hive. And if other people out there have 
uh, lay-ins hives and you've got some other method for delivering a treatment like that, please share it down in the video description. So that's actually the last question of the day. So now the fluff. It's going to talk about random things right now. So things that I want to remind you about, and of course, this is in the Northern Hemisphere. So if you're in North America, uh, your liquids should be done now. No more feeding of liquids, heavy syrups, or anything else, unless it's straight honey. And uh, you should be closed up for winter. Also, check all the joints. Walk around all of your hives and look between the boxes to see if there are gaps and openings. If there are gaps and openings in those uh, hives because they're misfit, because we put everything back together, uh, align your boxes really well. And I would suggest shipping straps, tying your hive boxes together. We have some strange weather going on and two things we don't want to happen. One, we don't want driving rain to be going in between those joints. The other thing is we don't want them to blow over or be knocked over. And shipping straps keep all of your hives together. This happened early this year when we got 60 mile an hour winds. And uh, even while the rain, while the trees were falling down, and we had lots of trees go down, um, I was suiting up, getting ready to go outside because as soon as the wind subsided, I knew I was going to be out there putting beehives back up. Those that had shipping straps on them were very easy to fix. Stand it right up and get them right back in place. If they didn't have shipping straps holding them together, you could expect to have boxes blow apart and be all over the place. So it's something to consider how you're preparing your hives for winter. Um, if you've got wind blocks, great, but also some people like to put straw and hay bales and things like that and stack them up around their hives. I understand that that feels good. It seems like a good idea, but what that could actually be creating is a cavitation. So if you've got prevailing winds as we do here, it's usually out of the West. So if I set up a row of hay bales, then the snow will sweep up over the hay bales and deposit immediately on the east side of them. And if that's where my hives are, there's going to be more snow piling up there than there otherwise would have been. So windbreak is one thing, but now it becomes a snow issue. So I don't put up hay bales or straw bales and things like that, because guess what else moves into them right away? Deer mice, meadow voles, everything else. So you've just provided habitat for rodents. So I don't recommend that, but have your stuff ready to go. Strong, solid, firm, and your boxes are aligned, this is your last chance really to do all of that. So if you've got liquid feed on, it's time to take it off. What we're doing this year, we talk about it almost every single video, but uh, I just got new Hive Alive packets. They changed everything. Look at the size of the label. It's now integrated into the plastic. And here's what I don't like about it. Look at the back. Now the instructions go over the whole thing. Part of the fun of the Hive Alive Fawnet was watching the bees go under everything and clean everything up as they expand through winter. And the formula is really good. This one is good until July of 2024. So you got a two year shelf life on these. And I have enough to give each hive three of these through winter. That's way overkill. Based on last winter's performance, only one hive even consumed all of this. And why is that? Because this is a supplement. It's an emergency, kind of like what we started out with today. Um, your supplemental feeding should be supplemental. It shouldn't be the main thing. And therefore, that's why we're not hugely concerned about the nutritional value of what's going in that we want them to have a carbohydrate. Worst thing 
for a new beekeeper or any beekeeper to find is a dead colony in spring and you find evidence that they consumed their resources and they starved to death. That is 100% preventable by the beekeeper. And here's how we have to think of things. When you're looking at your beehives, if you've got a Langstroth hive, if it's an eight frame, if it's a 10 frame uh, or a five frame nuke, right? The bees are gonna work their way directly up. The cluster kind of stays together and moves up. Dr. Leo Shirashkin says they move a millimeter a day. So if they're moving up through the honey that they've stored, that's number one that you wanna have on there, but it's too late now, I realize. If you haven't done it, if you haven't saved the honey, you don't have it. So as they move up, where do they look for resources? Directly above the cluster. This is why it is so frustrating for brand new beekeepers and old timers is when they find it in spring and the cluster's at the top and they used all their resources and maybe they had a candy board, maybe they had dry sugar and it's all gone. In fact, you find if you had a rapid round up there with dry sugar in it, some people, I'm really glad this has not happened to me, but this is something that other people find. You get up in there, this was full of sugar, and you find this full of bees, and the sugar's gone. And they consumed it all. This set over a hole that goes through the insulated, hopefully, inner cover. And if you've got a standard inner cover, I highly recommend that you insulate it and cut a hole through the insulation to make sure that the warmth is retained directly over the bees. Because directly over the cluster, the food directly above them, immediately adjacent, becomes warmed by the bees as they move over the top of it and they can consume it. They can't rush up here and consume cold capped honey away from the cluster. That's why two frames over, all the honey in the world, two inches away and your bees are starving right here. So that's why something like that fondant is very helpful because where is it located? Directly over the center hole of that insulated inner cover and the cluster, when they get to the end of the year, there they are and they're eating that as their emergency food. You as a beekeeper get, gets one of those weird days in January or February, it hits 55 or something. You go out there and pull the cover off and look at the fondant and you see that it's two thirds consumed. That's where you cut the little hole in the middle of another pack of fondant and you put that right on there and you pull the, the existing fondant off. Don't wait for them to consume all of it because you can cycle that back to them in spring as a secondary feed or something. But, um, Starving out your bees is avoidable. I don't want you to have to pull off the outer cover, pull off the inner cover, and get to feed down on the frames because that also exposes the hive to cold air and everything else in there. This is a point of contention with a lot of beekeepers, by the way, that exposing a hive in the middle of winter uh, doesn't really hurt them. Well, the studies show different. They're, the way that they can retain their heat and the damage to the bees is not immediately apparent. The, the chilling of brood can end up in a lot of brood that just doesn't make it. And then they're on the next warm day, they're cleaning it up and dragging them out onto the landing board because somebody had to look inside. So have an insulated, this is what I'm just telling the people that are trying to follow my methods. Please use an insulated inner cover, put your feet on top of that, have a feeder shim around that and an insulated outer cover over that and you can check your feed and do all those things without getting down into the bees 
and it will benefit them. I promise. If uh, your openings are bigger than 3 8 of an inch at your landing board, if they're taller than 3 8 of an inch, you need mouse guards on there because mice can move in. They just stink everything up and they go to the bathroom everywhere. I have one mouse uh, that's underneath a beehive. He is active all the time and that's because this video camera goes off constantly. They're motion activated. And this mouse comes and goes, but he's set up house underneath the bottom board of the hive. That's fine with me. And it also demonstrated he scooted across and tested all the entrances. And deer mice in particular, they move so fast and climb every single hive type. And they're constantly looking for an opening. But they cannot get through that 3 8 inch opening. And if it's 2 inches to 3 inches wide, you're good to go for winter. Now your next move is, of course, to make sure that your landing boards are slightly tilted down away from the hive. So you can tilt the back of the hive a little bit. And uh, so that when snow is melting and everything else, that it's, it's draining away and not into the hive. So that's a good thing to think about for those of you who are using hive visors. If you have them, if you don't have them. For those of you that have them, just you can lower those a little bit now. So here's your landing board. Your hive visor's right here. Heavy snowfall builds up on the hive visor and keeps that entrance clear. And then every chance you have to get out there, let's see, these just came out last year. But this was a great tool for me and something to do, you know. Morning comes, it's been a big snowstorm, suit up in all of your snow gear and go out there and just scoop a little opening on every landing board and make sure that they have ventilation. And that is not going to send a bunch of cold air up into where the cluster is because we don't use top vents. We don't use upper entrances. I've been on this soapbox for a long time now. Please don't do that. I did it in the past and I'm telling you that it improved it and it only works when there's insulation up there. If you have no insulation, if you have a standard metal telescoping cover on your hive and it has a little thin piece of Luon or whatever and then it's a three quarter inch wood trim around it and if that's sitting on a regular inner cover with no insulation and then you have your supers and everything down below, Yes, you'll have condensation directly over your bees and you will have a problem. And uh, that's where the venting comes from. If you had a tiny vent up there, it would prevent that condensation from forming directly over your bees. That's why I'm trying to teach that it's the combination of no venting and insulation on the top, inner cover, everything else. That's when you need it. It is going to improve your bees wintering ability. These are less than $5 at Better Bee. Have some kind of hive tool. I don't care if it's a coat hanger or whatever. And every chance you get, go out there, check your bees. And it's a feel-good moment too because you can get your head down there and you can listen and you can hear the hum of the bees in there. And proof of life in the wintertime because we just have to know. So check your strapping, insulated in your cover. Shout out to my fellow veterans and everything. But today the shout out is... There's a beekeeper that I'm worried about, a YouTuber. So I want you to check in on him. Maybe you know him because my viewers are all over the U.S. and other parts of the world. But he's called the Walls Bee Man. And that's Tim Durham. So he's an old-time beekeeper. He's been giving lessons on YouTube for years and years. And this is the time of year where things start to slow down a little bit for me. And I start looking into old YouTube channels, people that I used to pop in on and see what their videos are. And I love listening to old time beekeepers and their practices and how they're going through their hives and everything. 
I was surprised to find out that uh, Tim, his last video that he posted was a year ago. Not good news. So if you would please follow the link, which is going to be down in the video description. Check out the Walls Bee Man. He's a southern beekeeper. He has a lot of horse sense when it comes to keeping bees and uh, puts out, he has a lot of great videos out, good information. And at the end of every one of his videos, he tells a joke. And if he can stop laughing long enough to finish telling his joke, it's well worth listening. So today's shout out is to check in, do a wellness check for me on a, um, an old time beekeeper, Tim Durham. Shout out goes to him. And uh, the link is to his channel. Check his videos. Tell him that you said hello and send him words of encouragement, maybe. And I want to thank you for spending your time with me today. And I hope that uh, this terrible weekend ahead, I just hope you're ready for it and your bees are too. So thanks for watching and spending your time with me today. Mm -hmm.